Now, as we get to the Word of God today, I hope you brought your Bibles because I do not have the Scriptures for you on the screen today. So if you have your Bibles, I hope you do, uh, pull them out. We're going to look at several Scriptures today. I have the references here for you uh, on the screen. We're going to look at Matthew 28, Hebrews 12, Matthew 18, and 1 Corinthians chapter 5. These are some of the passages that we're going to be looking at today. And so if you want to begin to open to those, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. God, I pray that you would speak to us today. Lord, we need to hear from you. Lord, in a world that is so confused on so many different things, your word is a light. Your word is a lamp. Your word shines forth with brilliance and with clarity and with a a perpiscuity, that, that there's no confusion when we come to your word. It is so crystal clear. Lord, what we need help with today is not understanding your word. What we need help with today is submitting to your word and humbling ourselves under your word. And so, Lord, help us today through the power of your Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, you are the helper. And so, Lord, as we read through your word, bring illumination to our understanding and, Lord, bring a brokenness to our spirit that we would humble ourselves under your word and that we would walk in holiness and fellowship with you and that we would bring glory to your name, the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. What is the goal of the Christian life? What is the goal of the Christian life? Should our goal as Christians be different from people who are not Christians? The aim of our life, should, should we have the same goal as everybody else? Or should the fact that we have been saved by grace, called out of darkness, set free from the power of sin, headed to eternity with God, should that alter the goal of our life? Yes, it should. The, the aim of our lives is not the accumulation of possessions, amen? If that's the aim, we're probably not doing so well. Amen? If the aim of our life is just to accumulate stuff, accumulate money, or to to reach some sort of renowned personal fame and glory, that, that, that is not the aim of the Christian life. That's the aim of the world. But we don't live as the world. We've been called out of the world. And so for us as, as Christians, for us who follow Christ, the aim, the goal, the, the target for our lives is that our lives would bring glory to God. Amen. We live our lives to glorify God. That God would be glorified in our lives. That's what Jesus said. He said that we are the light of the world. The city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do we light a lamp and put it under a bushel. But we live our lives in such a way, putting our good deeds on display so that when people see the pattern of our life, that they would give glory to God for the way that we live our lives. That they would see your good deeds and give glory to God in heaven. Bringing glory to God is is not only the goal of our life, it's the reason for which we were created. So how do we do this? How do we glorify God? If this is the aim of our life, how do we know if we're glorifying God or if we're not? Well, we look to Jesus. We look to Jesus. Jesus is the one who lived his life perfectly in perfect submission to the Father, perfectly glorifying the Father. He lived his life not for his own glory, but to glorify his Father who was in heaven. And so we as Christians, if we, if we want to live a life that glorifies God, we must pattern our lives after the Lord Jesus. We must follow his example of humility. And as we look at the life of Jesus, what we see is that he obeyed God. He submitted his life, his will, to the will of the Father, keeping His commandments. And so that is the goal of our life. That is how we glorify God. We glorify God by loving Him and loving Him in such a way that we keep His commandments, that we follow His Word. And when we love God and we follow His Word, we will bring glory to Him in our lives. 
The, the book of Romans puts it this way. In Romans chapter 8, we, we, we know Romans chapter 8. We should know it well. We spent, I don't know, eight weeks a few years ago walking through this chapter, Romans chapter 8. But Romans 8, 28, it says this, that we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. How many of you love that verse? That God is working all things for your good for those who have been called according to his purpose as we love God. Now, verse 29 tells us the good that God is working out in our lives. Verse 29 says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. This is the good that God is working out in your life. I got one amen on that. <laughs> the good is not when something bad happens, you lose your job. Well, God is going to bring you a better job. That's not necessarily the good that God is doing. Guess what? You might get a worse job. But the good that God has committed to you in your life is that he's working all things in your life to conform your life to the pattern of his son, Jesus Christ. God is committed to producing the character of Christ in your life, which is so much better than having a good job. Amen. This is the good that God is working in our lives, producing the character of Christ in our hearts. And God is committed to this. And as God and as his children, he will ensure that his nature and character is formed in us. And so even as we go through hardship and trial, which we are promised in this life, we know that God is committed to producing his character in us. And then he's also justified us. And then he's also called us. And he's also sanctifying us. And that one day we're headed to that glory with him forever in his presence, world without end. Amen. And the Bible says that we were predestined for this. I don't want to get into a bunch of that and, and freak anybody out, but it simply means God chose you for this. God chose you for this kind of life. God, God chose you to produce his, the character of his son in your life so that the, the, the result of your life would bring glory to him. What a humbling reality. So we follow Christ. Amen. This is what it means to be a disciple. It means to be a follower of Christ to have your life reshaped and formed into the image of Christ. Now, how many of you admit I haven't quite arrived there yet? The Holy Spirit has a little bit of work left to do in my life. None of us has arrived. We all need help. It's a daily walk with the Lord. A daily process of growth. Flip over to Matthew chapter 28. Again, we're going to look at the Great Commission. Jesus said, all authority, uh, verse 18, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Make disciples of all nations. Help people follow Christ so that the character of Christ is produced in their lives. Help people follow the word of God, proclaim the gospel, help people follow the word of God so that the character of Christ is produced in their life. Make disciples of not just 78230, not just 210, 
not just Texas, not just United States of America, disciple the nations, all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the ends of the age. What does it mean to follow Christ? What does it mean to be a disciple? It means that we follow all of the teachings that Jesus taught. The mission of the church is to make disciples, to help people glorify God in their life by following Christ. This is the mission of the church. We spent several weeks on this going through our series on the church. Now, who is the church? We are the church. So if, it's, if the mission of the church is to disciple the nations, guess what? You yourself should be following Christ. Amen? Amen. You, you your, yourself, you and I, we are the church. We are the gathering. We, as a church, we have a responsibility to first follow Christ. But then we also, each one of us has a responsibility to help one another follow Christ. It's not that I just have a personal faith, personal devotion time. Me and the Lord, we've got a sweet thing going on. No, I have a responsibility. Why? Because God has called the church to make disciples and I am part of the church. So I have a responsibility to the members of my church that I myself am following Christ, but that I myself am also helping one another follow Christ. And so as a member of a local church, we are saying, these are the people that I am committed to. I am committed to this body, and I am committed to serving Christ with this body and helping those in this body also follow and serve Jesus Christ. This is called discipleship, following Christ, the mission of the church to disciple the nations. God has called us to San Antonio, Texas. God may be calling you to, to, to go as a missionary, but when you go as a missionary, you're not called to go do something else. You're called to go do this somewhere else. This, this is the mission of the church, evangelism and discipleship. And so how does discipleship occur? Well, the number one way discipleship occurs is as we gather together on the Lord's Day to worship the Lord, to hear His Word, and to take the Lord's Supper. This is the first step. This is number one. This is Christianity 101, this commitment to gather with God's people on the Lord's Day to worship the Lord, to hear His Word, to take the Lord's Supper, this is step number one. Congratulations. You're here today. God bless you. But not just once a month, right? We don't just gather when our life is in shambles. No, it is a regular weekly gathering together of God's people to meet with the Lord in His presence where two or three are gathered in his name, he is right here in our midst today. The second way discipleship occurs is in community. As we gather, as we, as we interact in relationships with one another within the body of Christ. Listen, you need to know the people that are in this room. Amen. It's not just come and I have my thing with the Lord, my own personal little time together, and then I walk out the door and, well, we'll see all those people. I don't know who they are, but we'll see them again next week. No, if we're truly going to follow Christ and help one another follow Christ, we have to know each other. At least know their name. I mean, we've got to start there. Well, I don't know anybody and nobody ever talks to me. Well, the Bible says he who has friends must show himself friendly. So slap a f smile on your face and go around and start introducing yourself. Amen. Amen. 
just because everybody else is being bad, it doesn't give you an excuse. Right? Listen, we, we have to break, break out of our own little bubble and cocoon if we're ever going to, to truly live out what it means to be a disciple. Amen. So again, you know, some Sundays I wish I could just, you know, shuffle the church like you shuffle a deck of cards because I know where everybody is. I know where everybody sits, which is helpful for me because then I can see, okay, they were here. They weren't here. At least I knew that they were here. They sit in their seat, you know. And if you go to a different seat, I'll, I'll be, oh my gosh, you know, they've, they've fallen away from the Lord. Where are they? I haven't seen them in four weeks. But, but again, that, that's... That's why I was so encouraged last week after church when there were so many who stayed behind. And I saw so many who I, I know don't normally know each other talking with each other. Because that's part of how we are discipled. You have to do it in community. You, you get to know one another. Of course, we have other you know, ways to, to grow in your faith at the church. We have our King's Bible Institute, which is on a break for summer but starts again in uh, August, I'd encourage you to go through that program. It's phenomenal. Uh, of course, we're gathering on one Wednesday night a month, these Ecclesia nights. These are opportunities that we're, we're giving you to, to walk out your salvation, to be a disciple of Jesus. But, but even more than that, discipleship happens in the thousands of little interactions that we have with one another throughout the course of our lives. It happens in community as we pray together, as we encourage one another, as we study God's word together. And of course, discipleship also happens as you seek godly counsel from the pastor and the elders. Those are opportunities for discipleship as well. Now, to be discipled, there may be times in our life where we need encouragement, where we need to be inspired, where we need to be nurtured in our faith. That's part of discipleship, encouraging one another, strengthening one another. Don't throw in the towel, keep going, keep pressing on, nurturing one another, loving one another. But there are also times in discipleship where we may need to be corrected. We may need to be challenged. There may be even things in our lives that the Lord needs to break in our lives where we need to be broken before the Lord. Discipleship is, a way we can think about discipleship is, is like a tree. And you, when you plant a young tree, sometimes that tree can start to, to grow a little crooked. Have you ever noticed that? What do you do with a tree that's, that's growing crooked? You just leave it alone? You just say, hey, what a stupid tree. You af do you affirm the tree and its brokenness and growing in the wrong direction? No, what do you do? You, you plant a stake in the ground. You, you put something stronger than that tree next to it. And then you tie that tree to that pole that is stronger. And over time, that tree will learn to grow straight and not be crooked. That's discipleship. Discipleship is being united to, tied to, bound to those believers that are following Christ, that are strong in their faith, and that as we are pulled in one direction or another, we may be tempted in this way or that way. They're, they're there to, 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 to hold us fast and to keep us straight. That's discipleship. Until we are strong enough to stand on our own and have others tied to us as well. It's why we put braces on crooked teeth. It's, it's the same principle behind a, a, a child that's learning to ride a bicycle. You, you put extra wheels on, those training wheels. Now, you know what you don't see training wheels on? You don't see training wheels on a Harley Davidson. <laughs> there, there comes a point where the training wheels should come off. You don't see a, you know, a 300-pound, 60-year-old man riding a small child's bicycle 
with training wheels. Right? That's absurd. There should be a point where we mature in Christ to the point where we graduate from these elementary basic things and, and people can then lean on us. Amen. So we need people in our life that can help us stand up straight, that can help us walk the path of following Christ. We need this type of restraint and even correction at times in our walk with the Lord. And so if we're going to have the image of Christ formed in us, we need both encouragement and correction in our lives. Now the word disciple and the word discipleship, they share a common root word. And as I tell you this common root word, it's going to be a word that none of us like at all. You know what the root word is? Discipline. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> ah. Some of that hurt you just hearing that word. I could talk about discipleship, following Christ, being a disciple. I could talk about that all day. And we all, amen, that's wonderful. Let's follow Christ together. And then I say the word discipline. Ugh. Yikes. As soon as I say that, a, another whole range of emotions starts to come into play in your life. Maybe you have flashbacks to Catholic you know, elementary school where the nuns cracked your fingers with a ruler or something. I didn't go to Catholic school, so I don't have memories of that, but I have memories of, I have memories of the paddle. I have memories of the belt. I have memories of the tennis shoe. My dad's choice of disciplinary uh, method of enforcing justice was his tennis shoe. I don't, he didn't wear belts very often, and so it was the tennis shoe. My mom's tool of justice was a wooden spoon. She used those until she ran out of wooden spoons, and then it was my dad got the tennis shoes out. So discipline, discipline. Not a word that we like, is it? We don't like to be disciplined. We live in a culture today that has issues with discipline. Just as a philosophical concept, our culture rejects the, the notion of discipline. Wholesale. Completely. Which shouldn't surprise us because our culture lives in open rebellion against the word of God. So it shouldn't surprise us as a culture that lives in open rebellion against the Word of God that the, would throw off what the Word of God teaches about discipline. Now when I grew up in the principal's office, he had a paddle in the principal's office. When I was a kid, if you were bad in school, the principal would spank your bottom and then tell your parents about it. And if that happened, guess what would happen when you got home that night? My, the parents wouldn't send an angry email to the principal. You would also receive a spanking from your parents. There are no more paddles in the principal's office in schools anymore. When I was a kid, I was afraid of the paddle. And it kept me straight at times where I wanted to be crooked. I understood that if I broke the rules, if I broke the commandments, there are consequences. 
People don't understand that anymore. Because we've taught them, we've, we've, there's a whole generation that has grown up in our culture that has been lied to and told there is no consequence for sin. Listen, all disciplinary action is helping to shape and form us and inform us and remind us that there is a final judgment. There is a final judgment that is coming one day. And our world doesn't believe that. We teach that there's no purpose to life, that there is no God, there is no creator, there is no final judgment. There, there is no consequences for any of your actions. That's what we teach kids today. And so it should be no wonder that we see people living their lives out as if they believe there are no consequences. But the Bible tells us that there is an ultimate day. And it's much better to endure some correction here and now than to stand before God on that day. And so every act of discipline, every act of correction is an act of love because the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. It will bring death to relationships. It will bring death to your marriage. It will bring death to your God-given purpose, the purpose and plan for your life can be destroyed because of sin. Don't be deceived by the culture of this world, by the spirit of this age that says there's no consequences. No, the wages of sin is death. Our culture has rejected the idea of discipline, rejected the idea of holding people to account. And because of that, our cities burn. This is not a way to build a nation. This is not a way to build a society. If things continue in this way, the society will come crumbling down. And that's actually the goal of a lot of people, is to deconstruct our nation. So they do not hold people to account because they want them to burn our nation to the ground. That's not God's way. God's way is you hold people to account. That you train people, teach them at an early age to humble themselves under God's law. But we as a church, what we have to be careful of because we're shaped by the world 24-7, we have to be careful that when we come into the world that we don't let the culture of the world infiltrate the church. So we cannot let these ideas of this rebellion against God and rebellion against discipline enter and infiltrate the church. Amen. That we as God's people must be shaped not by the culture of this world, but allow our character to be shaped by the nature of Christ. I asked you to open to Hebrews chapter 12. Let's look at verse 5. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5. Here the writer of Hebrews quotes from Proverbs chapter 3. He says, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when we are reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Verse 7, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. Listen, the, the people that the book of Hebrews is written to, he's writing to Hebrews, uh, Jewish people, Jewish Christians who live in Rome, who are being persecuted for their faith in Christ. They're being persecuted. And the writer of Hebrews says, this persecution that you're enduring, it's actually the discipline of God. And the reason God is disciplining you is because he loves you and he's treating you as sons. He's forming in you the character of Christ, Christ who also was persecuted, Christ who also laid down his life. God is teaching you how to be like Jesus. 
For what son is there whom a father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which we all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. That's talking about our earthly fathers. But he, our heavenly father, disciplines us for our good. Why? That we may share his holiness. You see, it is through the discipline of the Lord that sin is purged from our lives. Sin which produces death. Verse 11, for the moment, for in the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. Can I get an amen? amen. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Can I also get an amen? Amen. Listen, discipline is not pleasant. Correction is not pleasant. But it produces holiness in our lives as the pattern of sin is broken and the character of Christ is produced. The goal is holiness. The goal is righteousness. And you cannot have discipleship without godly discipline. A father who loves his children will discipline them. God also disciplines us to keep us from straying back into the pattern of the world that would try and pull us back into sin. And he also disciplines us to train us, to strengthen us. So we as a church, we must discipline those who stray into sin. I didn't get any amens on that. Let's go to Matthew 18. I asked you to open to Matthew 18. <laughs> Matthew 18. Remember the Great Commission, Matthew 28. Jesus said, teach them to obey all that I have commanded you. What we're going to look at in Matthew 18 falls into that all category of what Jesus commanded. Can you see how Matthew 28 follows Matthew 18? Do you see this? So if we're going to be a disciple of Christ, we, we must follow what Jesus teaches here in Matthew 18. Matthew 18, 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him, his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. What's this talking about? This is talking about discipline within the church. Discipline within the church. And so if your brother sins against you, if your brother in the body of Christ, if a member of Destiny Church sins against you, what are you to do? You're, go, you're to go and to gossip about it and to complain about it to everyone who will listen to you? No. Are you to come and tell the church leadership about this person that sinned against you? No. What are you to do? Go to them. One-on-one. -on -one. Don't talk to anybody else. Don't go to anybody else. You go to them. And notice it says, if your brother sins against you, not offends you, not hurts your feelings. We live in a world where we think that if you are offended, that, that somehow someone has sinned against you. Not necessarily. Not necessarily. Because I can offend someone without sinning at all. I can say something that offends somebody that is not sinful. Listen, if you've been offended, it's not that you go to that person and share your offense. If you have not been sinned against, if they have not broken God's law, you know what you're to do if you're offended? 
Forgive. Forgive them. Walk in forgiveness. Lay it at the foot of the cross and get on with life. Listen, if we kept a record of wrongs of everything that everybody ever did that offended us, we'd never go anywhere or do anything as a church or a body of Christ. We have opportunities to offend each other all the time. Sometimes I offend people just with my breath. Don't hold offenses against one another. Forgive each other and move on. But if a brother does sin against you, has sinned, then you go to them. And one-on-one -on -one you say, brother, you've sinned against me. You've, here, here's the, what the Word of God teaches and, and here's what you did. And I, I, I'm just bringing this to your attention. And it says, if he listens to you, if he hears, hears this offense, this, not this offense, if he hears this sin and he repents of this sin, you have gained your brother. That's it. It's done. It's over. You're moving on with life. What a beautiful thing. Well, what happens if he doesn't listen? Well, verse 16 is in our Bible for a reason. If he does not listen... Take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Do you see that what it's trying to do is to keep it as small as possible? What is the sin? What is the offense? What has happened? Keep it as small as possible. So if you go to the brother, if the brother is living in sin... Maybe they're sinning against their spouse or their wife. Maybe it's been brought to your attention that they're having some sort of an affair or something like this. You go to them. You confront them. If they repent, that's it. It's over. If they don't repent, you get two or three other brothers and you go with them and you confront them in their sin. If he refuses to listen to them, what do we do? Well, verse 17. At that point, you bring it to the church. You see how this is concentric circles of expansion. It's one, and it's two or three, and then it comes to the church. And the church acts in a way of bringing this brother to repentance. But it says, even if he refuses to listen to the church, then what do we do? Let him to be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. That's Jesus' way of saying an unbeliever. That if a brother lives in willful, unrepentant sin after being confronted not once, not twice, multiple occasions over a period of time, bathed in prayer, pleading with this brother, turn to Christ. Turn to Christ. Don't go down this path. If this brother hardens his heart in sin, there comes a point where that brother must be put out of the church. Truly I say to you, Jesus here, he says that we have the authority as the church to do this. We have the authority as the church to do this. He says, truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two or three of you agree on earth about anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. What we're talking about right now is, is serious business. Where we're talking about serious correction. We're talking about serious patterns of sin. Sin has eternal consequences. The Bible says that adulterers and liars and the sexually immoral will not inherit the kingdom of God. Amen. 
And so it is much better to endure the discipline of the church on earth than to receive the judgment of God on that last day. And so we as a church, we must not affirm people in their sin. The world wants to affirm people in their sin. We've dedicated the whole month of June in America to affirming people in their sin. We have parades going every weekend in our streets affirming people in their sin. They will stand before God. They will stand before God. And so we here on earth plead with them, turn from your sin. Trust in the only salvation you have, the blood of Jesus Christ. Sin produces death. We must dispel of the idea that discipline is unloving or uncaring. In fact, it's the most loving and caring thing in the world. It is our responsibility as the church to disciple each other, at times bring correction to one another. Matthew 18 shows us the pattern. The goal is repentance. The goal is restored fellowship. We're not talking about punitive action. We're not talking about punishing people. We're not talking about getting revenge against people. We're talking about leading people on a pathway back to Jesus Christ. Go to them first. Keep it as small as possible. But if there comes a point where someone who's living in open, serious, deliberate rebellion against God, there comes a point where we as a church must say, we can no longer affirm your profession of faith in Jesus Christ. That's what church membership is. We affirm one another in our profession of faith. And if someone repeatedly lives in open rebellion, willful, serious sin, even after receiving loving correction, there comes a point where it becomes obvious to everyone that this person loves their sin more than they love the Lord Jesus. And when that point happens, we as a church say, we can no longer affirm your statement of faith in Christ as a credible profession of faith. It is one of the most heartbreaking things in the world. I asked you to open to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. This is just another example of this. I'm going to wrap this up today. First Corinthians 5, there's a, a brother in the church living in open rebellion, open sin. And the church does nothing about it. First Corinthians 5, it says, Paul writes, It's actually reported to you that there is sexual immorality among you and a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. That's, Paul says, this is just beyond what even the world would tolerate. A a father and son sharing the same woman. And you are arrogant, he says. Ought you not rather to mourn? They're coming to church together. I don't know if they're riding like a three-wheeled bicycle or how they're getting to church, but like, They're coming together, worshiping the Lord together, taking communion together. And everyone in the church is like, oh, isn't this wonderful, the grace of God that we have. He says, you're arrogant. You ought to be mourning. Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though I am absent in the body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled... The ecclesia, in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus. Listen to what they're to do. 
you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Why? So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. He says you are to remove him from the church, remove him from the protection and the covering of the church, hand him over to the power of the enemy so that he may repent of his sin and be restored to fellowship in the body. Verse 6, do you not, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, talking about sin, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers and idolaters, since then you would have to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, calls himself a Christian, if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? It is, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Paul says it, it's not that we don't talk to and know people in the world that live in sin. No, because then we'd have to go out of the world. We're called to be salt and light in the world. So it's not that we disassociate ourselves from the sexually immoral of the world, but those in the church who refuse to repent after being warned repeatedly, called back to faithful relationship with Christ, there comes a point where we say, we can no longer fellowship with you because you are not walking with the Lord. This is the most heartbreaking thing that we as Christians must do because it is one of the most purest forms of discipline, which is also one of the most purest forms of love. Did Paul say this to remove this person because he hated this man? No, on the contrary. But this man was deeply deceived. He thought he could be a Christian and deliberately disobey the Lord. This process, it's not an overnight process. It's something that's bathed in love and prayer. Galatians 6.1 says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him to a spirit of gentleness. In a spirit of gentleness, keep watch on yourselves, lest you too be tempted. Again, I'm not talking about this kind of discipline for a husband who refuses to help his wife wash the dishes. Right? We're talking about the most serious and grave offenses. But what is the goal? The goal is repentance and restoration of fellowship. We see in, in the book of 2 Corinthians, they had actually did what Paul said, and the man repented. But they were so severe in their discipline, when he repented, they wouldn't receive him back. And so Paul has to write them again and says, your, your discipline is too severe. Now that he's repented, you welcome him back as a brother. Welcome him back with open arms. And so for, for those of us, it, the goal is to restore relationship, to receive them back fully, holding nothing against them whatsoever. This is not the world's way. The world's way is opposite of this. The world's way is if you're sinned against or offended, you go to everybody else except for the person that offended you. You put it on Facebook. You put it on Twitter. Look how this person offended me. Look at how this whole category of people have offended me. This group guilt. Instead of going to the person who has sinned against you. 
We must not be like the world in the church. If we're sinned against, we must go to the people who have sinned against us. The world's way is even, no, no matter what these people do, they're never forgiven. That's the world's way. You hold it against them forever. That's the world's way when you've been sinned against or offended. No matter how contrite they are, no matter how much they apologize, no matter how much they ask for forgiveness, you never forgive them in the world. That's not the church's way. The church's way is you go to them and when they repent, it's 100% restored relationship and fellowship. This is the way of the kingdom of God. So, church discipline is good for the person being disciplined. It's also good for other Christians in the body of Christ to see the danger of sin. It's good for the health of the church as a whole because a church that is riddled with sin is a weak and diseased church. It's good for the witness of the church in the community. A church that is full of sin has no witness to the community whatsoever if we look just like the world. And ultimately, church discipline brings glory to God. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. I actually know what all of you are thinking. When is lunch? <laughs> but I know what some of you are thinking. Well, didn't Jesus say not to judge people? Didn't Jesus say, judge not, lest ye be judged? Do you want me to address that or you just want me to finish? Okay. That's Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. But before I read that, let, let's just keep in mind that we're still in the book of Matthew, okay? So, so whatever Jesus says in Matthew 7... It has to fit with what Jesus says in Matthew 18, just a few chapters later. So whatever he says here does not contradict in any way whatsoever what we just learned in Matthew 18. It can't. So Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, everyone's favorite verse. Judge not, lest that, judge not that you not be judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use it, it will be measured to you. Why do you seek the speck that is in your brother's eye, but not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy. Do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and attack you. What Jesus is talking about here is judging with unrighteous judgment according to unrighteous standards. Judging as hypocrites is what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 7. What we're talking about in Matthew 18 is not judging as hypocrites and not judging according to unrighteous standards. What we're talking about in Matthew 18 is judging by the perfect, pure word of God, which Jesus says in Matthew 18 that we have the keys. The keys, he says. What do keys represent? Authority. We as a church have the authority to make these kinds of judgments, not based on our own insight, but based on what the Word of God says. Amen. Do you see that? If we try and judge everyone on our own standards, we're nothing but a bunch of hypocrites. But it's God's Word that is the standard. Amen. That's the difference. And so, he says, with the judgment that you, you use, it is the same judgment that will be used against you. Guess what? If I commit adultery, I expect to be put out of this church. I would not be shocked to be put out of this church. It shouldn't shock anybody else. If you're going to leave your spouse to go off with another person, 
How, can the, how in the world could we look each other in the eye and affirm that person in their walk with Christ? How could we do that, honestly? We can't. So the most loving thing that we can do is to tell them in the most serious way that we can, we do not believe that you are following Christ. And that if you died in this moment, we can't affirm you in where you would go. You must repent. It's the most loving thing that we can do. God has given the church the keys. I don't have a set of keys up in the office. It's not a physical set of keys. It represents the authority that the ecclesia has, that we have to use God's word in rendering judgment in these types of matters. This is discipleship. Discipleship is helping one another follow Christ. I pray to God that we never have to use that authority. I pray to God we never have to do that. I pray to God I never have to come to the church and say we have had one of the elders or one of the deacons or one of our leaders that has left his wife and is living in open rebellion. I pray to God I never have to do that. But to be a faithful shepherd and to be a faithful church, we must be willing, if God forbid that happened, that we would come together in the name of Christ and remove that person from our midst. How can we tell someone how they should live unless we're also able to tell someone how they should not live? What is the standard? Of course it is God's word. We're not talking about personal preferences. We're not talking about small and significant things today. We're talking about large, weighty matters. So in conclusion today, let's be willing as a church to obey the Lord. This is the Lord's teaching, by the way. These are the words of Jesus. In your Bible, these words are in red. This is Jesus' teaching on the church. Let's be willing to obey the Lord. Let's be willing, if we are sinned against, to have the difficult conversations. Let's be willing to go to that person in love. Not so that we can puff ourselves up with pride, but that we can seek restoration and fellowship and repentance. If someone is caught in sin, let us pray and pray diligently for their soul. And let us go to them in love to bring encouragement to them and to bring correction to them. And this is how the character of Christ is formed in us. And this is how we bring glory to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, there are some things in your word that are so easy there are some things in your word that are hard. Lord, as we look at this issue of discipleship and discipline, it is a hard teaching. But Lord, you have given it to us for our good. So Lord, we ask that our minds on this issue, our thoughts on this issue would not be trained by the culture of the world, but would be trained by the character of Christ that we would humble ourselves under the word of God, that if we have been sinned against, that we would not go to one another and gossip, but we would go to those who have sinned against us one-on-one -on -one to seek repentance and restoration of fellowship. Lord, if we are in sin, Lord, that we would confess our sin before you right now. Lord, as we prepare to take of your table, that we would remember that you are the only sacrifice for sin. No amount of good works can cleanse us of our sin. But we look to you wholly and we lean on your grace fully. We ask that you would help us as a church, Lord, to be 
a shining example in our city, a powerful witness of the saving power of Jesus. Lord, that you have not only forgiven us of sin, but you've set us free from the power of sin, that we might walk in righteousness and holiness. Pour out your grace on each one of our lives. Pour out your grace in our community. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.